You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Thursday, April 27th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn. And we have a little problem, a little technical problem. The reason... I have not uploaded the show from Tuesday and the show from last week is because the USB cord that I have in my basement to connect my phone to my computer is messed up and it won't recognize the phone. So it's not for lack of trying on my part. So there's the solution is to get the cord from upstairs and try to do it with that cord. Which would, of course, you know, I gotta walk up the stairs now to do that. All right, okay. You know what? I'm sorry, I'm a little aggravated. Not about the cord because I was trying to turn right out of my parking lot, and then somebody pulls right up to the driveway of my office and stops and waves me on. Just go by, just go by, and then I'll go when it's my turn. I don't, I don't need you to stop and wave me on. It just takes time. I mean, that's not. you think it's courteous, but it's not. Just follow the rules of traffic. We have a system. We have order. So anyway, there's, there's the difficulties that we're going through on the Christian commute right now. Courteous people and uh, a cord that doesn't work. And if the one upstairs doesn't work, I'll just get on Amazon and order a new one. Uh, what is this? I think it's USB-C. USB-C is how this phone works. I do not have a full show for you today. And you know what? I have no one to blame but myself. Because the more shows I put out, the more questions people send in. But when I don't put the shows out, people don't listen. People don't think to write me. My fault. I'm not blaming any of you for not knowing answers about Christian theology and apologetics. And therefore not sending me the questions. But if you were to have a question about Christian theology or apologetics, you could write to SethDunn88 at gmail.com or you can dial 470, you could dial, 470-315-0875. The Christian commutes your theological roadside assistance. Now hold on, i got to pass. Somebody's already going slow on the side street in some Dodge truck that's about a million years old. And now they're getting over. That's why I guess that's why they were going slow. I don't know. I've had a terrible time of driving today. It absolutely poured here in Georgia. Uh, I've had two baseball games and a soccer practice canceled. So my oldest son's baseball game, my middle son's t-ball game, and my uh, my daughter's soccer practice all canceled due to the weather. The Braves had a terrible rain delay. I was listening to them. And I was going to leave work when they got finished, and they blew a four-run lead in the ninth. Thanks, A.J. Minter. And then Chavez is going to take the loss on that, I guess. But A.J. Minter, you're the one who blew the lead. Some closer. They need Iglesias back. He started a rehab assignment. And all you guys who don't care about the Braves are saying, move on with it. I will. We're continuing in the Through Seminary series today. 
and we're back to another winter workshop class at the Defend the Faith workshop. This one is Problem of Evil. Problem of Evil is one of the core classes for the apologetics degree. You have a, a Christian apologetics, apologetic method, and Problem of Evil. And then I think there's, and Logic is another one. And then I think you can pick from a couple of elective uh, apologetics classes. This is one of the required ones, Problem of Evil. And we'll get to that after we do the Bible chapter review. We have moved on today to Matthew 21. We've got a, I got a Coke in here. What's a tea? It's yesterday's sweet tea from Dubs. It's still kind of cool. And it's watered down now, but I'm going to drink it. I have a lemonade from Panera Bread, and it tastes down. Something's wrong with it. I didn't drink it all on the way home. It's one of those way here. It's one of those charged lemonades that has caffeine, like coffee. I'd get them in the morning sometimes. But it tasted spoiled, or like it's like this is what fermented lemonade would taste like. Of course, me being a fundamentalist Baptist, I do not have a. I'm not a great expert and what fermented things taste like. But you know when apple cider gets old, it kind of tasted like that. It's supposed to be sour, but something was wrong with it. More sour than usual. In my Fuji apple cranberry lemonade from Panera Bread. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to, to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. By the way, this is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. See... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So what's going on here? Jesus is about to make what has become known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He is entering Jerusalem with great expectation. And as Matthew tends to do, he fills us in on a historical event in the life of Jesus that happened to fulfill a prophecy. In this case, hold on, I'm going to let the horses run. I think I got 220 horsepower. I don't know how many donkey power that is. Jesus is riding on a donkey. Uh, 220 horsepower here in the van using every bit of my V6. I don't know, is it a V6 or an inline 6? I don't even know. But I had to pass a tractor trailer on the exit. The, uh, entrance ramp what's happening here is Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy and Matthew is tying the the events of Jesus's life back to a prophecy in the Old Testament he did this all the way back in Matthew to the beginning at the birth narrative when he goes to Egypt and he says it is written out of Egypt I will call my son because Jesus fled Jesus's whole family fled to Egypt because of the persecution of Herod and then uh, when that was over, they came back from Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew is tying that in the life of Jesus to the statement of, of the Old Testament, which, I mean, has, 
you call that and you say, well, that has to have a double fulfillment meaning because if you just read the Old Testament without having the New Testament out of Egypt, you'd call my son, my son you'd be thinking that Jesus is calling his people uh, out of Egypt, which he did, but Matthew is adding new understanding to that. This is a messianic prophecy that's just a messianic prophecy. It's about the king returning in the book of Zechariah. No, really no argument here. And Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, Zechariah uses the Hebrew parallelism here. He says, mounted on a donkey, even a colt. What's a colt? A colt's a donkey. The foal of a beast of burden. What's the foal of a beast of burden? That's a colt. What's a colt? A donkey. What's a beast of burden? A donkey. So he's, Zechariah says donkey three different ways. This can be confusing to modern readers because in contemporary English parlance, when we, when we refer to a colt, we're talking about a young horse because in our society, we ride horses. And you get all the way back to King James days, they were probably riding horses, whoever could afford it. When we have cars now, we don't ride as many horses. But when you think of a cowboy riding something, when you think of somebody riding a beast of burden in the Western Hemisphere, you always think of a horse. You never think of somebody riding a donkey. You can ride a donkey. Jesus rode one. I suppose people rode them often in the ancient Near East. Balaam rode a donkey. His donkey even talked to him. So riding a donkey was more commonplace then than it is now. But the word here, colt, means donkey. It doesn't mean young horse. That, I know that can get confusing to some people. And it even, it's even confusing when you read Matthew chapter 21 and Jesus says, uh, go into the village and you're going to find uh, a donkey there and a colt with her. And Jesus is telling them to go bring him these animals. And we see uh, him say the same thing in the other Gospels. And here's the thing, by the way, I guess we can, we can stop the Bible chapter review as far as telling you what this is about. This is about Jesus making his entrance into Jerusalem as the Messiah, according to prophecy. Boom, bang, boom, bang, we're done. Now let's talk about an apologetics application. This is not a very good objection to the inerrancy of Scripture, but some people will make it. Because if you, if you don't think real hard about it, if you just read it at face value, you can, you can see that, that it looks like a, uh, an error in Scripture. Not an error in Matthew, but an error with the other Scriptures. Okay, The other Gospels don't mention two donkeys. The old one and the young one. They just mentioned one. Matthew mentions two. And some people say, well, what is it? Scripture can't be inerrant because Matthew mentions two and the other, the other Gospels just mention one. Well, just because the other Gospels only mention one of them doesn't mean that two animals weren't there. And I think the implication here for Matthew is the donkey is the mother and the young donkey, the colt, is the offspring of that donkey. Like these donkeys are related. They're family. They're a little donkey family. So 
some people will say Matthew misunderstands the prophecy and he says well alright the prophecy is for a donkey and a colt so uh, Matthew has to line it up where Jesus is getting a donkey and a colt and that's backwards that that would only be if he's making it up that it didn't happen or that it happened where there was only one animal and he misunderstood the prophecy so he had to make it where there's two oh the prophecy says it's a donkey and a colt like no Matthew like anybody else back then would have understood that it's just one animal being spoken about in Zechariah 9 don a donkey even a colt the foal of the beast of burden it's just talking about the colt why did they get both animals why did Jesus tell his disciples to get the donkey and the other donkey which is the younger one that's a colt I don't know he only really needed one to ride maybe the other one was to carry his stuff I have no idea I don't know how much stuff Jesus carried around with him walking around in his itinerant ministry but this is something you should be aware of because people will bring this up to you as a biblical difficulty as an apparent contradiction it's really not and you have you'll have to get them to explain to you well why is it a contradiction now I know I had a friend mention it to me once and I had never even thought about it and th by the way that'll be most of the biblical di uh, difficulties so-called contradictions uh, that you come across is like yeah I've never even thought about that like uh, what is it Judas the different accounts of Judas from uh, Luke versus the other Gospels talking about Judas's suicide like well you know which which one was it how did he hang himself you know who bought the potter's field hey I, I read those and I do what you call a vertical reading of, of those like we're doing now and I never even think about it but people looking for mistakes and looking for uh, contradictions they'll find it and they'll say well what about this and you have to know how to explain it so now you're prepared to explain the the differences not contradiction but differences in the text regarding the uh, two donkeys or one donkey and Zechariah's prophecy and now let's move on straight to the show topic because I do not have a question in the inbox here comes the yawn <sighs> and I'm actually back to where I would have started the show before I changed jobs back in the day I just passed the field turf exit And I, I really know I'm not going to talk about this apologetics class the whole time. So it's probably, what am I going to do? I'm going to be halfway home and just have to sit in silence in my car. Listen to music to the sound of silence. Hello questions, my old friends. I've come to ask for another one again. Because no one sent one to me. Even though I have been begging For a question about apologetics or theology Send it to me Lest I endure the sound of silence Alright, every, every time you don't send me a question or I'm sort of questions I might butcher a classic song I butchered Simon and Garfunkel yesterday I butchered Queen, okay 
Through Seminary, Problem of Evil. Like I said, I took this course in a winter workshop at the Defend the Faith series. Went down there uh, the first week of January after New Year's Day in 2015. My professor for this course was Ryan Putnam. No, sorry. See? See? Ryan Putman. Everybody wants to call him Ryan Putnam, but it's not. It's Ryan Putman. Ryan Putman, not Ryan Putnam. And he is from Arkansas. So even if his parents had named him Ryan, 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 everybody would say Ryan anyway. Hey, Ryan. Because... Hey, Ryan, nobody's, you don't go to Arkansas and say, Hey, Ryan, let's go get some chicken. No, it's, Hey, Ryan, let's get some chicken. All right, so my professor from Arkansas, my friend, he's a, he's a personal friend of mine. He's about my age. I visited his church when I went to do Reagan Hall's wedding. I stopped halfway in between uh, Bentonville, where I was going, or Bella Vista, technically, and my house and hung out with Ryan Putman. Not Putnam, Putman. Okay? And at this time, he, he he's at some college in Arkansas now, Williams Baptist College, the alma mater of J.D. Hall. He's there, but he was at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And I took this course with him in the winter problem of evil and you guys remember when i did the episode on the christian apologetics class and i said i had to write a paper i chose the problem of evil because i knew i would have to take this course later and write a paper on the problem of evil and i did so it is not the exact same paper but i turned in i don't know maybe 80 percent of the same paper as my problem of evil paper And you can't really plagiarize yourself if you cite it. <laughs> I cited my own paper in a paper that I wrote. It was in Turabian format. They can't touch me. It's all nice and legal. The problem of evil, as I have mentioned, is probably the most prevalent apologetic issue in history. And I want you to think about this. There's various creation myths, as I've, I've mentioned before. I don't think anybody really has a problem with the idea of a deity or deities creating the world or creating the universe and ordering it in a certain way. And when we talk about God as the uncaused cause when we talk about, say, something like a Thomistic proof or the, cosmolo the Kalam cosmological argument. I think that makes sense to a lot of people when somebody says, where does the world come from? Well, God did it. I don't think people get hung up about that. No, people get, get hung up about the condition of the world. 
That being the evil in the world, the bad things that happen, the bad things that happen to supposedly good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. We're all wicked sinners, except for Jesus. Jesus was the only good person ever. Why do you call me good, he said. Only God in heaven is good. But he's God. And then something bad happened to him anyway. Depends on your perspective. Um, it was, it's bad to be crucified. Uh, but it's good for the atonement to save us all. So you think about mainline church people who do not believe in the literal Genesis account. But they still believe that Genesis happened in a sense that it is at least metaphorical or trying to explain something. And then they still believe in other events that happened in the Bible. And they believe in God and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, there's all kinds of people in church, mainliners, or moderates and liberals who still believe in God. And the the idea that God created the universe does not trip them up. They, they're not like, well, evolution just proves the Bible, so I'm going to be, I'm not going to be a Christian. No, they still go to church. And by the way, these people are not swayed out of religion because of the problem of evil either. But the people who take objection to theology proper, like the existence of God, we'll say theism, people who take objection to theism in general or what you might call a specific brand of theism or worldview of theism, Christianity is mine, but there's Islam, there's others. People who reject a certain system do so out of the problem of evil. Somebody might say, I reject Christianity because God sacrificed his own son on a cross. I don't think that's right. I reject Christianity. Well, there's other people who say, I reject the existence of God at all because uh, babies die in earthquakes or burn up in fires. They can think of something bad. It doesn't have to be a baby. Because of evil in the world. So you have to have responses, which we call theodicies, to the problem of evil. And there's only a handful of them. Uh, one of the most popular ones or prominent ones is a soul-building theodicy, which is the explanation that, yes, bad things do happen, but it builds the soul of, of the Christian or of the person. God allows them to happen for you to get through them, and now you're stronger and better off for it. And there's even the idea that things, everything's going to work out. This seems bad, but in the long run, in God, God's plan, it works out. I mean, that's, that's Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. So yeah, when you're talking about all things, there's bad things going in there. But God is sovereign. He, you know, he sees the end from the beginning. He makes the end from the beginning. And there's some explanation, but we just don't know it. And this is an objection people have that's called gratuitous evil. So you could, you could Google this, the argument for gratuitous evil. Uh, so you could say something like, uh, you could imagine something like somebody gets married 
and he cheats on his wife because he doesn't really value her and then one day they're they're driving home from a concert that they went out to together they have a car wreck she dies so not only has an evil happened that he cheated on his wife uh, but he also lost his wife in a car wreck car wreck so here's this innocent woman cheated on and she died and her her widower is racked with guilt over that he cheated on her and he's also in despair that his wife died a couple years goes by he meets a new woman they get married he becomes the best husband there ever was and a great father and he learned his lesson from how he treated his other wife and he raises this great family he raises sons who go on to be even better husbands than he is to their wives and yes something bad happens and when it happened they couldn't figure out what it was but then something good came out of it and by the way then you get into the whole idea of utilitarianism and terps terps by the way are the measurement of evil you have dollars in your bank account five dollars is more than one dollar five terps is more evil than one terp you can you can go somebody come up, came up with something called a terp so you could say that cheating on his wife was uh, negative 1,000 her, her dying was negative 10,000 for a negative 11,000 effect on the world but them he being him appreciating his new wife even better and raising this great family was positive 50,000 then some and what I want to say is how, how do you even decide what good and evil are without a God that's that's another part of the argument otherwise it's subjective but somebody could come along and say well there's something like gratuitous evil something that is so bad it's impossible to imagine how some good could come of it and the example of this the classic example of this is there is a fawn in the forest a little Bambi fawn and then there is a forest fire and the little Bambi fawn is caught away from his mother encircled by the flames and they bear down on the little Bambi fawn and he can't get away and he burns to death slowly and somebody could say well yeah the forest had to burn because the growth was old and the new trees are going to grow back better or you know maybe somebody's going to build an amusement park where the forest used to be you know whatever you want to make up but why did the why did the baby fawn have to die why did he have to burn to death in the most miserable way it's a baby fawn it's not like he's going to go to heaven he has no soul it's just the short miserable existence of this baby fawn that didn't have to happen when when god in his sovereignty burnt down the forest he didn't have to burn the little baby fawn down in it did he and they call that gratuitous evil and the response to that is still you still don't know because you're not omnipotent the same explanation applies you can still be short-sighted and I've already come up with the response to the argument for gratuitous evil so somebody doing Christian apologetics and theodicy can counter it in order to glorify God <laughs> and that's my argument for the baby fawn burning up so that's that's a theodicy uh, explaining that God meant some good out of it whether it be a soul-building theodicy or not, to the problem of evil. The, the problem of evil at its most basic form is evil exists, 
God is good. Therefore, God can't exist because if evil, ex- if if God was good, then we wouldn't have evil. We have evil. Therefore, there's no God. That's the the basic form of the argument. And you can Google this. And my Seth Dunn problem of evil, gsethdunn.wordpress.com problem of evil. You can read me going through this argument. And uh, philosophers don't really seriously. Anthony Mackey. I think was the most famous recent philosopher who talked about this argument. But philosophers really don't seriously hold to that argument as a proof against God anymore because there's so many explanations for it. Uh, It doesn't really hold. One of them is called trans-world depravity. Alvin Plantinga is the philosopher famous for this. So trans-world depravity is the idea that God had in this infinite number, almost infinite number of worlds he could actualize. So in eternity past, God has not yet, even though there's no time, yet created the world. And he can create any world he wants to. But in this world, he's going to create free creatures. So he can create worlds without free creatures, but he's chosen not to do that. So in any possible world with creaturely freedom, There's going to be evil. No matter what world God actualizes, if he actualizes a world in which there are free creatures, they are free to do evil to go against God's nature. That's trans-world depravity. So what you say is there's really no feasible world in which there are free creatures in which there's no evil. So your your argument, if, if they're, you know, if... If there's a God, there'd be no there'd be evil. Well, no, trans-world depravity. And that's not an argument from the Bible. That's a philosophical argument. Because, quite frankly, it's not an argument from the Bible for somebody to say, well, there can't be a God because evil exists. And remember, as a Christian, you're not looking for philosophical answers. You're looking for biblical answers. I mean, you can give both. We've talked about doing classical apologetics. You can give both. So when the atheist says, well, problem of evil, there's, there's, there's evil in the world, but you're supposed to have a God. That, there's, since there's evil, there can't be a God. Well, you say, well, listen, trans-world depravity, soul-building theodicy. You don't have perfect knowledge. You know, here's any number of reasons that your argument doesn't make sense. I like Leibniz's argument that this is the best possible world. Because it's the one God made, He wouldn't have made a, He wouldn't have made a different world. Of all the worlds God could have made, this must be the best one because it's the one He made. I know that doesn't sit right with a lot of people, but it makes it makes sense with me. It's like a sort of like the Goldilocks and the Three Bears argument. This this porridge is just right. But yeah, you go to the atheist and you say, "All right, I've got I've got." I've got answers to your gratuitous evil. I've got answers to your basic problem of evil. I got an answer to that. You haven't really disproven the existence of God. And now the atheist says, "All right, well, I guess I'm open to the existence of God, even though there's evil in the world." And then what you'd further say to somebody like, "You're recognizing evil. You know, if you're recognizing evil, you have to have God to define evil." This gets into the axiological argument. If objective values, or what William Lane Craig calls the moral argument, if objective moral values and duties exist, oh, sorry, I got that backwards. This is a modus tollens. If God does not exist, 
Objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. If not A, then not B. B, so A. And here's the idea. If, if there's no God to be the standard, then moral values and duties are ultimately subjective to people and societies in historic times. And the, the argument William Lane Craig makes, would, if the Nazis won, it would have been morally okay to exterminate the Jews. But it was, in fact, objectionably morally evil. So when you have stuff like that, well, if Germany wins World War II, the Holocaust was okay. If America wins World War II, the Holocaust was not okay. Or you have God exists, the Holocaust was not okay no matter who wins World War II. Doesn't make a difference. Evil is evil. So two, is really you don't really go out proving what is an uh, objective moral value and duty. As Christians, you use divine command theory to ground objective morals and duties in the nature of God as revealed by the Bible. But what you do in, when you're making that argument is say, you either believe in objective moral values and duties or you don't. And because you're saying that evil exists, it's all subjective. You need objective evil to make your argument. And now that you have objective evil, you have to have God. So there's different ways to go about it when you meet these atheists who have a problem of evil. And they're like, all right, now, okay, I'm open to the belief in God. You know what? Lots of people believe in God and they die and go to hell. I'm passing the demonic church of Freemasonry. Those Freemasons are probably going to die and go to hell. I'm passing the Masjid, uh, Cartersville Islamic Center. They believe in God. They're going to die and go to hell. They're theists. You're going to pass a lot of churches in town, people who believe in God, and they're going to go to hell. And when you're on the way to church on Sunday morning, you're going to pass by a bunch of people in their houses who didn't go to church and don't go to church, and almost all of them believe in God. 98% of people believe in God. You know, they may not have it right, but it's Jesus is God, and this is, you know, they don't understand the Trinity. But almost everybody believes in God. Okay? They're going to go to hell if they don't know Jesus is Savior. If they're not a Christian, they're going to go to hell. Okay? So now you have these people, whether they're former atheists or not, they're, they're open to belief in God because they pr the problem of evil is what stopped it. Remember, it wasn't evolution in Charles Darwin, all right? It wasn't, I didn't come from no monkey. It wasn't that. It wasn't science, okay? Questions of science, science and progress. No, wasn't that. Problem of evil. So they're still not Christians. Why? Because they don't want to worship God. Because they recognize he... Now we're talking about somebody who recognizes God exists. This is not a problem of evil as it relates to atheism. This is people who are just not saved, not Christians. So they have a problem of evil. They recognize God exists. They, made every, they know he made everything. They know he can do whatever he wants. And then they don't like him because they say, well, look at the world you made. It had the Holocaust in it. And the Jews are supposed to be your people. Come on. What kind of, I'm not going to worship you. What kind of God are you? 
And that's where you have to be biblically grounded. And say, all right, I have a biblical explanation as to why evil's in the world. So you can talk about trans world depravity, but I can show you right here in the Bible that you have the devil and you have Adam and Eve, and that's a recipe for the fall. All right? Here's where evil comes from. And look, here's how God's going to fix it through the Messiah. Well, I don't, I don't approve you know, what kind of horrible child abuse father sacrifices his own son on the cross. Dude, he resurrected and, and brought everybody to new life and to be reconciled with the father. That was an act of love. He saved you. So people are going to get mad about what Jesus did to save you? Forget about it. So that's where you explain what I call, or what, what I call, I didn't make it up, what people call, what theologians call, what we talk about on this show. It's where you explain the meta-narrative meta of Scripture and how everything points to Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So you get them there, and they're all right, I get, I get it, there's evil in the world, and I get uh, that Jesus made it possible to be saved. Okay. Are they saved yet? No, because Columbo says one more thing. Just one last thing. What about hell? Because people say, all right, I get that there's evil in the world because of the free creatures, and I get that's explained by the devil and Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, and I get that Jesus came and made it where we could be saved, but here's the deal. Not everybody gets saved. Not all people, not the devil and the demons. Everybody who does wrong is not brought back into fellowship with God. And what happens to them? It's not that they're just annihilated or obliterated where they cease to exist. They burn in hell forever. What's that about? I'm not going to worship a God who would send people to hell. Oh, really? You're not going to worship a God who would punish the guilty? Well, they had a finite offense. No offense against an infinite God is finite. And I always like something William Lane Craig said about hell that I never thought about before. Is the people in hell are actually constantly sinning in their resentment of God for being in hell. It's not like they sinned and now they're done sinning and they go to hell. No, they are sinning in perpetuity forever and they're separated in hell. And I never thought about that before. And by the way, some of these explanations work in your mind. But if you seriously have a hang-up about hell, that's an emotional thing. Sometimes people just have to get over that. Uh, these objections, you, you find when you go through this and what you eventually want to prove to people is like your objection is not intellectual or logical, it's emotional. You know who's never really cared about people going to hell? Me. I'm not going to hell. I'm a Christian. Jesus died for my sins and I got saved. And anybody who wants to get saved can get saved. Only, only bad people go to hell. And really only bad people go to heaven who are redeemed. Everybody's bad. And some people get to go to heaven because they ask Jesus to forgive and save them. And you can think, well, Seth, that doesn't, does that mean you're not evangelistic? No, no, I am. I don't want anybody to go to hell. But you... 
You're not going to hear me me evangelizing. You got to get out in the streets and say the gospel. They're all going to go to hell. It's no. We got to get out of the streets and preach the gospel because God told us to. The results are up to Him. But I've never had this emotional reaction or objection to well, what about hell? I mean, I've I've always thought about like okay, somebody at church told me heaven and hell. Like okay, I get it. So when somebody has that objection, I mean, you got to kind of step into it, try and empathize with them. Like, why do you have this objection? Like, what's going on here? Get down to it. But what I hope for you to see in this episode, which is really more about the problem of evil than my class, um, was the different levels at which the problem of evil operates, whether from general theism or specific religion, specific Christianity. Somebody else could have objections to another religion based on the problem of evil. I'm not defending that religion because it's not true. I'm defending mine. So that was what we studied in the class. There were speeches about the problem of evil, lectures about the problem of evil. And, but of course, we were free to go to whatever lecture and breakout session we wanted to go to. And there was reading... There was homework and there was a paper. I think I read a book on the problem of evil by some philosopher, seminary professor from Southern. I, Jeremy, I'm friends with him on Facebook. I want to say his name is Jeremy, but I forget the name of his book. Overall, it was a good class and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed thinking through those things. And I'm going to tell you this, the reason it's a core class, it's not like something that you could take for an apologetics degree. If you're going to get a Master of Divinity with a specialization in apologetics, you have to take that course because I'm telling you, that's the one you need to be ready to answer as an apologist. Those are the ones you need to be able to address. You need to be aware of it. And I, I, uh, I'm done with the show. I came a different way home because I got my car at a, an auto shop over here. The Kia's got to get the window rolled up. I wanted to eyeball it. They're waiting on the peace from Kia. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Send me a question. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.